coming up on this episode of Cancer Chat. Why in pancreatic cancer it's been so tough, as well as brain cancer like glioblastoma, uh, is because we clearly have not been able to capture those patients early enough. So that is an area that I have a lot of hope in we'll still be able to do where good research will lead us to more and more funding to be able to go much deeper into finding those early tumor lesions that we currently can't see on somebody's pancreas, for example. Welcome to the MUSC Hollings Cancer Center's uh, Cancer Chat Podcast. I'm uh, Dr. Ray DeBoyce, Director of the Hollings Cancer Center, and I'm here today with our Associate Director for Translational Science and Basic Science Researcher, Dr. Dennis Guttridge. Today, we'll be discussing questions we frequently get asked, like, uh, when will there be a cure for cancer? And is all the time and money we're pouring into this research really worth it? Uh, 2021 is a perfect time to dive into this conversation as we commemorate the 50th anniversary of the National Cancer Act. This really helped launch a coordinated effort to address cancer and was established by the National Cancer Institute Cancer Centers Program, of which Hollings is a part. A lot of our progress has been made since then, yet there's still much more work to do, as you'll understand when we go through our uh, discussion today. Um, so first question, where do we currently stand in the fight, of, uh, in the fight against cancer? Are outcomes improving? Clearly, we have cured some cancers, uh, some of the childhood leukemias have been cured, as well as testicular cancer and a few others, but many, we still uh, need to make a lot more progress. So Dennis, what are your thoughts about this and where do you think things are headed? Well, first of all, Ray, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to discuss this topic with you. Um, we've recently been talking about this. I know when Dr. Sharpless had visited us uh, last month, we, we had a discussion about uh, the war on cancer and and how um, I brought up this this topic about how actually it, as cancer researchers we probably haven't been good enough messaging to the general public how we're doing um, because when we think about how long we've been doing this for 50 years now celebrating the National Cancer Act uh, it's really important to tell people how far we've come and although we can't claim that we've won this cancer, as you've mentioned, we have won some battles and it's important to recognize that. And I think there's statistics that people don't often know that uh, to a cancer researcher, we should be proud to say that we, we have come and we have made some significant strides. You, you've mentioned pediatrics, for example. Um, I often uh, talk to people about what were how far we've come with pediatric cancers when we know that back in the the 1970s when we launched this this effort um and if a, if a parent was told that a child had uh, their child had cancer their uh, the five-year survival rate would be somewhere around five percent it was very very dire where now we can tell those same parents that the chance of their child living past five years which is sort of the the, the mark that we generally talk about, we talk about uh, survival, or even further than that, we can say the outcome would be greater than 90%, 90% chance that they have to, to be cured of their cancer. 
That's just an amazing number that we can use now uh, talking about 50 years. Now, 50 years is a long time, but we started seeing great improvements even back in the 1990s. Uh, and that's because of, uh, of, of the, the research that we've put into this, uh, the great uh, differences we made in surgery, the chemotherapy, the radiation, the combination that we've had with children. Um, but we've had also really um, major significant differences in adult cancers as well. Um, I'll, I'll just say uh, overall, when we talk about significant improvements, I think the public needs to understand that um, cancer deaths in general since the 1990s uh, have been reduced by 35%. That's a major, major reduction. And in breast cancer, that's about 40%. So we've, we've reduced uh, deaths in, in, in women with breast cancer by, by 40% since the 1990s. You know, this is a direction that we're really, uh, that we're very proud in going. It's clearly not good enough. Uh, especially when women are diagnosed in late stages. But it is, it is a place that we can say research has made the difference. Screening has made the difference. We'll probably talk more about that in our pod today. Um, but, but clearly there, there's been some wins, and I think we could be proud of that, and I think we can say that we're going, I think, in the right direction. Yeah, Dennis, I, I would totally agree with you on that. I think when I first started researching uh, colorectal cancer, there was only one drug available. It was called 5-FU, and it wasn't very effective because most people presented at very late-stage disease. So, you know, we gave it to all the patients, but they all died, you know, within the five-year interval. But now, you know, 10 or 15% of colon cancer patients have this high mismatch repair, microsatellite instability. And of that group, they've responded really well to checkpoint inhibitors in combination with other agents. So that's a great advance. It's not a cure for all colon cancer, but now we know there are different flavors of the disease and certain flavors respond really well to different types of treatment. One of the issues that's come up recently, and I get a lot of questions about, is this COVID-19 impact on cancer, and it has really had a big impact on decreased screening for all types of major cancers. The good news is uh, just last week, there was a publication looking at where we are compared to the big dip in screening, and it looks like across most of the country, we've returned to a more normal levels of screening. So I'm really excited to see that that's happened because we we don't want to lose ground on cancers that we already know how to screen for and uh, and and have an improvement. So what would you Dennis what would you say were the major advances we've made towards a cure and uh, you know some of the things you've already touched on but uh, I think our group would like to hear you know what those are and and where the most exciting areas have been our focus. Sure. Um and, and I think you touched on it in, in your response to, to my first point. And I think the public has has sort of become a, a lot better educated on sort of these buzzwords that they've heard now uh, in the news we, that, you know, you use the word checkpoint, but it really refers to immune therapy. So when we talk about the great advances, that's clearly one of the places that all of us in the cancer research uh, community uh, whether you're a basic scientist like myself, physician scientist like yourself, a clinician, you know, we all recognize and again can be proud of uh, all the contributions that our community has made to understanding uh, the breakthroughs that have happened 
colorectal patients that you describe, a subpopulation of them that respond very well now to these immune therapy uh, treatments. And, and to that population, you know, um, melanoma patients, again, uh, respond very well because they have high mutation rates in their DNA and patients with high mutation rates in their DNA tend to do better in terms of responding uh, to immune therapies, which allows uh, the immune system, specifically T cells, to be much more effective at recognizing tumor cells and, and clearing them out and being able to, to uh, eradicate the tumors. And we've seen the same response in, in lung cancer. So clearly, col subtypes of colorectal cancers uh, melanoma, uh, lung cancer patients. We're, we're seeing this breakthrough in cancer care in specific cancers, whereas before, as you mentioned, as a physician, you would not have that many options to give to your patients. But now, oncologists are, are finding that they can have more options. And, you know, I've heard this from my oncology colleagues that they have used the word, this is brown, uh, a breakthrough, a brown, uh, uh, you know, a real a game changer for them. Um, and I think the hope is that we can uh, keep improving these, these type of therapies, these type of immune therapies to make the, the, the immune cells, these T cells even better uh, than what we're, we're, we're seeing now, so that they give them even more responsive to the cancers that we've seen effects, and to then take the cancers that we're currently not seeing uh, a response by these same immune therapies that we're using to try to figure out why isn't it working and what could we do to adapt it to the cancers to get that same kind of response, to be able to get those kind of game changers and those other, uh, those are the t cancer types. Yeah, I, I agree completely. You know, some other areas that I think are exciting or our ability to, to detect cancer earlier, because we know if we treat earlier or intervene earlier, we have a better outcome. So, you know, the circulating tumor cell testing and the the D, you know naked DNA testing in in the in the blood. I think it's it's not where we want it to be, but it certainly shows promise that we will be able to at one of these days have a pan cancer test that we could deploy fairly early and make sure that we can uh, intervene at the earliest point. Clearly, there are some of these cancers that are a tough nut to crack, and uh, a couple that come to mind are pancreatic cancer. Uh, and brain cancer, just uh, two. So what are your thoughts about that? Where, where do you think the basic science needs to go to, to open up more opportunities there? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, you talk about um, screening, uh, new technologies to, to screen, such as looking at in somebody's blood and being able to detect circulating cells, circulating tumor cells, and being able to see at a very, very uh, high level what we would not be able to see before that could give us some very early indication that somebody has a very early stage of cancer. Um, screening, screening has made a huge difference, as you know. And before I talk about pancreatic, for example, and the difficulties of pancreatic, I want to take a step back and talk about as you know very well, what it's meant for colon cancer, right? The ability 
for uh, for people to have colonoscopies. And, and that kind of screening has made all the difference in the world and being, people being able to see early stage colon cancer and being able to then, uh, in a very simplistic way, I would say, being able to remove a benign polyp and literally save somebody's lives, right? Uh, and this has been the case for, for breast cancer screening, for lung cancer screening, all the cancers we've had the best outcomes for, the ones we've been able to see the clearest uh, effects in being able to give people uh, 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 life, uh, increase in their lifespan, almost cures, have been when we've been able to screen and, and being able to treat them when they've had uh, early stage cancers. And this is, the, you know, that's been, the, that's been the, the, the magic for us. And, and so early screening is the thing. And now why in pancreatic cancer, it's been so tough as well as brain cancer, like glioblastoma, uh, is because we clearly have not been able to capture those patients early enough. We have not been able to find a way to screen those patients either by really, uh, high-end imaging or uh, uh, what we would call biomarker, like what you mentioned, where we could take somebody's blood and look for an early tumor cell that's circulating in somebody's blood and be able to pick that up. So that is an area that I have a lot of hope in we'll still be able to do, you know, where, where good research will lead us to where hopefully good more and more funding from NIH and, and the NCI will lead us to will be uh, from new engineering methods that and new methods from physics that will give us new tools and imaging to be able to go much deeper into finding those early tumor lesions that we currently can't see on somebody's pancreas, for example, when somebody's going in for maybe even a routine check, we'll be able to find that. And then the surgeon will be able to take it, biopsy it, say, yes, actually there's some incidents, some, some, some evidence here that you have some tumor cells and give that person the chance to be able to take it out before it spreads, before we have a case of metastasis. Uh, or be able to have new methods to be able to pick up uh, uh, either a circulating tumor cell or be able to say that something in your, in, your, in your bloodstream is not normal. Either there's a specific metabolite, something in your bloodstream that indicates that something is not normal, that we would do further testing and we would be able to pick up that you have now an early stage pancreas cancer. The earlier we can detect it, the better of a chance we can remove it and then follow up with, with a chemotherapy and hopefully even new next generation immune therapy that would then be able to treat that and we would start to talk about living with cancer and potentially curing that cancer. So currently we don't have that for pancreas cancer. We've come further in being able to give people longer life, which is fantastic. But this is still a challenge that we, we have in, in that cancer as well as, as well as glioblastoma. After the break, Dr. Dennis Gutridge dives deeper into the question, can cancer be cured and the groundbreaking treatments holding the most promise in cancer care? At multiple levels at which we can understand, we're trying to subtype people's cancers to understand what is different about that particular cancer? So we do, ne we, we do no longer 
uh, think of one person's pancreas cancer, one person's prostate cancer, one person's bladder cancer, liver cancer. It's always these subtypes so that we can better understand if there's something that's different about that subtype and we understand it better, then, then we may have a drug that can particularly treat that subtype. Now, back to the chat. I think that's a very good point. And, I, you know, the key here is that future research is vital. We need to continue on that track and, and make uh, these discoveries of these tough cancers uh, come, come to fruition uh, for the future. Um, so one of the, clearly one of the areas I think that's been uh, certainly eye-opening for, for a lot of people in the public is that um, even one cancer is not just one type of cancer. Uh, it has several different subtypes, and each of the subtypes sometimes responds well to one type of treatment but not to another, and that brings up this whole issue of precision oncology, precision medicine, and uh, what what do you think is going to fuel the precision going forward, and how how are we here at Hollings trying to align ourselves to be able to take advantage of precision medicine and treatment for our patients? Yeah, pre precision medicine is is again uh, I think um, a word that the public is much more familiar with. It's a buzzword that we've used in in cancer treatment and cancer care. We're, we're clearly not where we want to be, but it was it's clearly something that um, we've talked about now in the last 10 years because we've recognized ever since, I think back in the 90s when, when in the Clinton administration, we were able to uh, sequence our human genome. And starting from that point on, we were, and being able to take people's uh, tumors and be able to sequence that, the DNA of those tumors, we were able to really appreciate and be able to talk have new conversations about people's cancers, right? And and you know this very well, Ray. We're not we were not just saying that uh, people have breast cancer, people have prostate cancer, people have colon cancers. As you mentioned, the different subtypes of colon cancer, colorectal cancers. We we were we were now using subtypes, and and pathologists had always talked about subtypes, but now we are doing it at the genomic level genomic level because we're talking about the genes now that code for the different mutations in tumors. Um, and that was, that was being revealed to us by being able to have these really now full sequences of everybody's DNA in, our, in tumors. Uh, and it was giving us a very detailed map so that we could definitely talk about different types of breast cancers. And why that was so, so important is because when we were when we were now seeing um, that were specific mutations in 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 women who had breast cancer for let's say a gene that was mutated that wasn't able to repair DNA as well this famous BRCA1 mutation and we we can now a genetic counselor could then tell a woman you have a mutation in this particular gene that this, this opened up an entirely new conversation we could have with a woman who could be predisposed, who we knew had a very good chance of passing on that mutation in, in her family. And we would give that, that, now, that, that, that patient a new chance for surviving that cancer. So th this is the type of precision medicine that, is, that has been uh, revealed to us by being able to do 
uh, really pre precision type of, of new research into somebody's tumors. And, and we're, we're, this is happening now, we would say, on, on almost everybody's cancer. You know, we have had this information now for years, and, and we're trying to understand uh, not only in the genomic level, but genes code for proteins, and proteins have function. And in cancer cells, these function do not uh, function normally. So at multiple levels at which we can understand, we're trying to subtype people's cancers to understand what is different about that particular cancer. So we do, ne we, we do no longer... Uh, think of one person's pancreas cancer, one person's prostate cancer, one person's bladder cancer, liver cancer. It's always these subtypes so that we can better understand if there's something that's different about that subtype and we understand it better, then, then we may have a drug that can particularly treat that subtype. Or uh, we understand um, that there may be... Um, something about the gene that's mutated that we can use genetic counseling to be able to appropriately uh, describe uh, how that mutation can be passed down in the family and then conversations can be had about how to uh, to handle that uh, going forward. So so I think that that and and our and our physicians and our researchers use that information at Hollings uh, all the time to be able to be uh, best connected to what kind of, uh, clinical trials are out there that we can enroll our patients when there is a drug that hits a specific type of mutation that we can discover when we, in fact, are, um, are sequencing our patients' tumors and being able to provide that personal care uh, to our patients to be able to have this kind of precision medicine that, um, that you refer to. Yeah. So, so Dennis, clearly, I think... Uh, the, this subtyping of the the cancers our patients have is really uh, paying off and will pay off more in the future. The other question that you know I get a lot is uh, what are, what treatments are you most excited about? And I can remember back when you know Gleevec came out for CML type of leukemia that everybody thought that was going to be the answer to everything. Although as as we learned, <laughs> those patients eventually became resistant to the drug. So there's there's been these, you know, exciting sort of bright horizons that then faded a little bit. But each one of those gave us information that we needed to take back to the lab, develop a better drug that uh, that you know couldn't uh, offer resistance. Um, so what types of treatments do you think hold the most promise now? Well, we, we talked about uh, immune therapy and uh, an aspect of immune therapy, and we talked about T cells and the, the importance of, of making a better T cell, right? So part of immune therapy is also what we call cell-based therapies, um, being able to take immune cells uh, from a patient and in the laboratory, uh, being able to expand those T cells, manipulate those T cells in a way genetically to be able to then put those T cells back into a patient and, and making them more active, right, in, against, against a tumor. So this is a, a therapy that, that perhaps, again, uh, people listening to this pod will, will, have, will, will recognize that we call CAR-T therapy, um, which, uh, which we're very excited here about Hollings 
because we're talking about being able uh, to have this kind of therapy available to our patients. So it already it already is available, but we're talking about expanding it, um, and that that's rev another kind of revolutionary uh, therapy that right now has been shown very good promise for uh, bloodborne cancers. You talk about Gleevec, uh, which is a small molecule, uh, which has been which has been very very effective in terms of a of a specific type. Of, of leukemia. And this kind of CAR-T therapy is also shown very promising in, again, specific types uh, uh, of leukemias. And, and they're being used now more and more and more because uh, it, it's, it's amazing the number that, that uh, in the literature and all the studies that we're, we're, we're hearing from all of our colleagues, it will not only here at Hollings, because we have some phenomenal immunologists here at, at, at Hollings that are pursuing this kind of technology, uh, both, I would say, both in their labs and also our physicians that are translating this into their patients. It's really been exciting to watch. Um, but also all our colleagues across the country and, and across the globe that are really expanding this. And, and we're really finding some unique ways in which we could tweak, I would say, uh, manipulate these, these immune cells to become really active and to hone in precisely on the, t on the, the cancer cells. Uh, which is what we need to do. This is all part of that precision medicine that we were talking about. So when you ask, you know, what are, what are the what are the the next therapies that are really going to make that the the, the 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 big changes in cancer? Uh, I think that that's really still going to be it because I think we've we've learned in the last ten years how to how to take what what our body normally does very well for us. Right? There's there's a reason, and I. I apologize if I digress here a little bit, but if you give me a chance, there's a reason why our bodies, why we we don't, you know, why we don't, most of us don't get cancer when we're young. I mean, pediatric cancer is a thing, but it's a very rare cancer. Most most people get cancers later on in life, and that's because we have a very good immune system. Our immune system takes very good care of us. Our T cells uh, do their thing, and whenever they see a, a uh, foreign antigens or foreign cells like cancer cells, they do and they clear them out. And it's typically when our immune system gets a little worn down and we get aged, that this is when it starts to get awry. So we've learned about the immune system. We've learned about how these T cells normally worked. And we've now been able to harness the power of our immune system for, for really for good. And, and we're manipulating our T cells, being able to inject them back into patients in a, in a new way that that shows us that it's working and, and we have to be able to now find new technologies to be able to, uh, to hone in on, on different types of cancer cells, sort of like going back to pancreas cancer or, or brain cancers where we haven't get been able to see the big differences to really be able to manipulate that technology to make, to make it work um, better. So, yeah. And, and you, you, you know yourself, Ray, with, with your own efforts in Stand Up to Cancer, uh, that I, I'm sure these efforts are, are being talked about because this is a major national effort that you're involved in. Um, and, and you might want to say a few things about that because uh, that, that's obviously something where, uh, you know, treatments are being accelerated based on, 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 on the stand-up to cancer efforts. In the last segment of the episode, Dr. Gutridge highlights Holling's collaboration efforts in the search for the cure and how researchers can take cancer treatment from the bench to the bedside. 
And we've also actually in, involved an element of, of biotech and the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, I personally uh, meet with them and I try to find out what is in their pipeline, what is either an FDA approved drug or what is an early product drug that they're willing to share. And when there's a product that they can share that we can start to involve in some very early studies, we, we include them. Now, back to the chat. Thanks, Dennis. Uh, I was uh, um, lucky uh, when uh, I was the president of the American Association for Cancer Research in 2008, 2009. There was a group of women from Hollywood, basically, that uh, wanted to accelerate cancer research as much as possible. And uh, one of them had breast cancer and eventually died from it. But she was very passionate about this effort, and, and they all got together and established this Stand Up to Cancer Foundation. So I was involved early on the board there, and now I'm on the uh, 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 vice chair of the Scientific uh, Advisory Committee. One of the early thoughts was uh, to really accelerate progress. We needed to bring together investigators who were at the top of their game in different areas on the same team. Uh, and even though they're at different uh, universities or different cancer centers, we wanted to incentivize them to work together because previously they had been in competition with one another, uh, fighting to get you know the discovery made before somebody else did. And this you know this leads to a lot of wasted time and effort. So the dream team concept came out, and we offered funding for dream teams in breast cancer and you know pancreatic and lung and other cancers and we found that uh, by by putting these people on the same team they really did uh, accelerate their progress they worked together they shared data they shared discoveries uh, they we required that they meet and uh, have be there have their program reviewed every 6 months and those were very revealing in terms of making sure everybody was on the same page. And so that that led to a whole, I mean, I think it's we're in our 12th or 14th year now uh, to, to a lot of these teams, over a thousand clinical trials and numerous publications and all kinds of things have happened. Um, about midway through, we came up with this concept to uh, start a what we called a catalyst program. This was where we worked with industry partners uh, to work together on the development of drugs in early phase clinical trials, mainly combination therapy. And what we required the companies to do was to make open up their pipelines and make all of their drugs available to investigators long before they would normally be made available. And then also to collaborate directly with the teams uh, and let them know what was going on at the industry level with regard to progress. Because a lot of times they, they know well before the public does which is going to fail and which is going to work uh, because it helps uh, them develop a product that no other company has. So that has worked really well. The companies uh, put together about a $70 million package. Uh, we essentially had Bristol-Myers Squibb, uh, Merck, uh, and Genentech involved uh, very early on. Now there's other companies wanting to to, to also be uh, involved as well. But this is, uh, and there are about three or four examples where we're, we're able to develop some drugs and approaches for childhood cancers uh, that have essentially saved people's lives that wouldn't have happened otherwise. So this this is a you know been a very uh, long over a decade now of experience, but we've we've tried some things, made some progress. There are other people now wanting to support. 
these kinds of dream teams and other big projects. And just recently, the Breakthrough Cancer Foundation was developed with five cancer centers, and they're doing similar work to what was done with Stand Up. And I think this is a wave of the future and one that uh, I think will help progress going forward. No, that, that, that's tremendous. I, I, I love hearing that, um, that this model can be expanded as well and can be modified along the way. I, I really appreciate how you were able to include uh, biotech and pharma because uh, I think being able to include phase one drugs uh, early like that and uh, be able to, uh, to open up their pipeline is, is, a, is a great way to make things happen much faster. So, Dennis, you've really been instrumental in building and developing uh, and getting a lot of uh, people excited about our translational uh, cancer program. Uh, why don't you share some of this with our listeners, why you thought it was important, why you think, you know, Hollings needs to go in this direction and what kind of progress we're making? Yeah, thanks for letting me talk about this. You know, I, I, I came to to MUSC in Hollings in 2018, and, and I'm, I'm a basic scientist, and, um, but I've been working in, um, in, in a medical center my entire career, and, and, and I've always wanted, not being a physician, I've wanted to always make a difference for, for patients and, 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 and cancer patients. And, and one, one of the, the, the great things about working in a medical center is by being able to collaborate with physicians. And, and so one of the things I've always wanted to do, and I had the opportunity of doing that, joining Hollings Cancer Center and being the Associate Director of Translational Sciences, really being able to work on a translational pipeline, um, being able to figure out a way um, to bring basic scientists and physicians uh, to accelerate that pipeline. And what, what, what we mean by that is how do you take science from the bench and move it into clinical trials, which is the, the, the mission, missions that we're charged with by being an NCI-designated cancer center. Uh, and, and, you know, all, all cancer centers, whether you're NCI-designated or not, uh, would, would, this, is, this is what they, their, their mission is. But it, it's, 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 it's uh, easier said than done. And, and it takes a lot of coordination. Uh, it takes a lot of good communication. It take, and, um, and this is what I, I'm really passionate about. And, and it takes the right community and the right environment, which we have here. So we, we set up uh, in 2017, this was done before I, I came here, so I don't get any of the credit for starting these transdisciplinary cancer teams, what we call TCTs, in um, specific cancer, uh, uh, in specific uh, cancer groups. Um, uh, and they're really meant for people who have expertise in, in either uh, lung cancer or breast cancer or uh, leukemias or pancreatic cancer or colon cancer. Different, different cancer types. And uh, we bring people with different disciplines, uh, either basic scientists, physicians, but you can have expertise uh, in uh, computation and engineering, uh, a, a whole different variety of expertises. If you're interested in cancer, that particular cancer type, we really want you at the table because we really want you to be able to provide what we need to work together to be able to push the concept. And it is actually a, a miniature version of the stand up to cancer, what you're talking about, because many of us are, are, are familiar with either working on a patient or working in our laboratories. 
but we don't really always find the time to work together, as you talked about with all these these star groups that are from different universities and they're they're more competitive. And that you brought you found synap cancer as a way to bring these people together and work together to make differences. And that's the way these TCTs are are set up within our our own cancer center. Um, and the and we've also actually in, involved an element of of biotech and the pharmaceutical industry. We've reached out to all of them. Uh, I personally. Uh, meet with them and I try to find out what is in their pipeline, what is either an FDA approved drug or what is an early product drug that they're willing to share. And we, I explain to them all the different TCTs that we have in each of our, of our cancer types. And uh, I invite them to join the meeting so that they can learn what's going on with us. And when there's a product that they can share that we can start to involve in some very early studies, we, we include them and we look at what is making the difference in some of our preclinical models that we could move forward. And by having the physicians involved in these, in these TCDs, it's very important because they are the ones with the expertise to learn how to be able to write up a protocol so we can move them in a formal phase one clinical trial or a phase one or phase two clinical trial that we can actually then see if we're, if we're gonna have, if this product is gonna be safe and it's gonna make a difference in a, in a patient. So. I'm very excited about this because it, it really does help move therapy faster in patients, which is the goal for our cancer center. And more importantly, it makes science better because we work together and we learn from each other. So I'm, I'm looking forward in the future of Hollings to be able to, um, to keep expanding and keep accelerating this translational pipeline that we have um, for, to be able to increase cancer care here uh, for our patients in South Carolina. Thanks, Dennis. You know, I think this approach is critical and clearly uh, one that a lot of different cancer centers are working on. And it sort of has led to this idea of these basket trials where, you know, usually we just do trials on uh, different types of organ cancers that develop colon, lung, breast, or whatever. What is it about the basket trial that you find exciting? And maybe uh, we could, you could help explain it to our uh, patients and, and supporters, you know, why this approach uh, might be something to consider as well as, you know, just treating brain with the same recipe or pancreas with the same recipe and, and what, what's different in, in this basket approach. Yeah. Um, well, I'll, 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 I'll admit, right. This is a little bit outside my area of expertise, so I'm not going to go too into this. So I might actually lean a little bit more on you on this one. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> because I'm not the clinician here, um, so I might have you talk about this one, and and I might I might you know uh, lean in uh, and comment based on your points if you don't mind. Yeah, it's basically a type of clinical trial that sh you know test a drug or other approach, immunotherapy or whatever, in patients who have multiple different types of cancer. So that's why they're all in the same basket, uh, but they have the same sort of mutation biomarker the same type and density of immune cells that are in the tumor microenvironment or whatever you're measuring to try to see, uh, you know, some generalities in treatments. And uh, uh, there, there are several centers around the country that have really focused on this, especially in their phase one programs. And they found that some, you know, there, some small percentage of breast cancer or other types of cancer respond to an agent that they probably would have never looked at in another way because they didn't have enough of those patients 
uh, to do a large trial. So, I mean, it really emerged from this uh, transdisciplinary translational uh, approach that you just talked about. And I think it's opened our eyes a lo- up a little bit about, you know, how can precision oncology really play a role here? Because if we know what all those subtle differences are, and that just by hitting one of those targets or a combination of the targets that show up in the basket uh, trial, uh, that we get a, a significant response. The, the, then further trials can be planned in the future to look at that subset uh, with larger numbers of individuals across multiple centers uh, to see if that's really going to be a game changer or not. You know, and, and thanks for clearing that for me. And I what, based on what you said, what I'd really love to be able to do in, the, in our TCTs is have like a biotech or, or pharma be able to tell us about a drug where they've got early indication on a particular pathway or, or, or mutation that they've seen an effect in that they're, that they're following up in, in one tumor. But we know that that mutation or that, that signal is, is gone awry or dysfunctional in particular other tumors. And we know, and then in our different TCT groups that we have, we have animal models that we can study those cancers, that we would be able to take that drug and that the company would give us permission to test in our various different uh, cancer types that we study through our different TCTs. And in a coordinated way, would be able to get an answer back very quickly. That Those kind of data would power a trial in Hollings very quickly. So to set up kind of the basket approach that you described, we can do that here because it's sort of this coordinated effort. Uh, the nice thing is that um, we, we, we know who the TCD co-leaders are, we talk often, and so through this coordination communication, these kind of accelerated programs can, and these accelerated trials, I think, can happen much, much quicker. Sure. And uh, w- one last question that I have, Dennis, is, you know, it's, I think it's always important for us to explain to the public uh, and our supporters and others who are you know, have, have had cancer, had loved ones with cancer. Why is it so important for us to continue this research and, and get additional support uh, going forward? And, you know, that vital funding is, it's so competitive now to get any single grant funded. But uh, we, I think we need to step up the support going forward so that we can continue and even accelerate our progress. So, why do you think we need to continue this research? You, you know, I, I'm the glass half full kind of guy all the time. And, and um, I do tell the general public all the time when I, tell, and I talk about cancer, how we've come a long way, but we've had some wins. And I, I credit those wins to the public and to their taxpayer dollars. And so I also take the opportunity to explain to them that it's their taxpayers that 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 contributes to the funding that uh, that your lab receives, that that my lab receives, that our NCI designated cancer center receives, and every five years we have to get reaccredited, uh, and we have to show that we've done something with those dollars, or we're not going to get funded anymore. And so we have to reach the the you know the milestones that we say we're going to. Uh, we push the research. Uh, we we make the advances, and um, and and I think we have. Uh, I mean, you know, we talked about the wins in childhood cancers. We've talked about the differences in 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 breast cancer, uh, in colorectal cancer, in lung cancer, in melanoma, and certainly we have a lot more to do. Not only in those cancers because we haven't cured them yet, but we've made huge differences. 
but in the other cancers that we that we also talked about today, like in in pancreas cancer and and brain tumors, where we haven't seen all the, the differences, but but clearly um, where we started in this journey 50 years ago and what we're celebrating this 50 year anniversary, we can say that we have taken research dollars and we've made differences. And I can look somebody clearly in their eyes and say that with all uh, sincerity. And I know that uh, the dollars are making a difference, absolutely. Uh, and when I see the future and I see what we've been able, what, what we can do now with future research and where we're going and uh, this, the new screening technologies we're gonna be able to do, the imaging, the biomarkers, uh, the new therapies that we call about CAR T therapies, immune therapies, and everything else that's on the horizon. I'm very, very excited. And I know that those kind of therapies are, are only going to be possible because of continued research. And we're clearly, I mean, our country's clearly in the lead globally in biomedical research, specifically in cancer research. And we want to, we want to be it. We want to maintain that. Uh, and it's also one thing is also important. I also tell people, you know, I'm going to age out. I'm sorry to tell you this, Ray, but you're going to age out too. So, you know, the research is going to have to maintain the next generation. And it's very, very important that you and I keep training the next physician, the next basic scientist. And that the, the money and the research is going to maintain that next generation. So we're going to pass on that baton and they're going to continue the great work that all of us are doing to be able to make sure that the cures are going to keep coming. That's the way I look at it. I don't know how you see it. Yeah, I, I, you know, we've had lots of discussions about the path forward for Hollings. So our education pipeline is vital. You know, it's like this whole thing of you don't want to eat your seed corn because then you don't have anything to plant for the next uh, crop of corn for the next year. So we really have to continue to nurture, mentor, attract and develop uh, the, the next generation of scientists and physicians. And that will definitely always be a part of our strategic plan for the Cancer Center. You know, we've had some success here in developing new uh, therapies using immuno-oncology for lung cancer and other types of cancers. So we really want to continue uh, down that path and incorporate some novel uh, CAR T-cell therapies for the citizens of the state of South Carolina and continue to make uh, breakthroughs in that area. There's a lot going on here now and with on the basic science side and also on the uh, early clinical side. We just want to make sure we take advantage of, of any advances that we can make with immuno-oncology because essentially what we're doing is we're, retra we're retraining the immune system of the individuals to attack their own cancers. So they're actually becoming the treatment. <laughs> they're treating their own cancers. And the better we can do that and the more we can understand, I think we're going to be a lot more successful. We've got a group here that's uh, working on uh, what we call molecular epidemiology, developing better ways to study populations at risk for cancer who, or who have already had cancers. That will include developing better markers for early cancer. We really want to address the health equity and cancer equity and look at different populations and why they have a worse outcome than others. Uh, we want to prevent cancer in that, those populations as best we possibly can. And those are people that we take care of in our catchment area here in the state. And we don't want to ignore uh, that group of the population because it's very important uh, that we treat everybody the same and focus on areas where there's health disparities. We're, we're continuing to try to develop our genomic genetics and precision oncology, as we discussed earlier, 
and characterizing those targets and all the molecular changes so that we can improve our diagnosis, uh, treatment, and prevention. So that's a general theme that we, we are going to continue to hit uh, here at Hollings. We're blessed in that we have a, a local group of investigators who have really excelled in what we call bioactive lipid signaling. And I hate to even use that term for our, the, our supporters out there, but basically it's an area of uh, uh, rich with cancer targets and other areas that we can use to diagnose early and then uh, inhibit those pathways to treat the disease. And lastly, uh, survivorship is becoming a big deal in cancer. 50 years ago, it wasn't a problem because very few people survived, but now 16 to 20,000 people are, uh, have survived with cancer. We want to focus on making sure that they have a full life and a healthy life with good well-being. And uh, this starts at the time of diagnosis until the end of their life, which in some cases is a, the natural time that they would uh, in their, uh, have an end to the, their, their lifetime. So survivorship is really going to be important going forward. So these are some areas that we really want to focus on, really uh, get to the top of our game here at uh, the Hollings Cancer Center. And so we'll be having more discussions, more recruiting, uh, bringing in better and more cutting edge technology going forward and uh, thinking of ways where we can just be the most highly innovative uh, and successful cancer center uh, in the country. So thank you very much, Dennis, uh, for taking the time today to have this discussion. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Ray. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cancer Chat. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MUSC Hollings, and visit us online at www.hollingscancercenter.musc.edu. And remember, here at the Hollings Cancer Center, we're finding tomorrow's cure for cancer today.